You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable and fixed blade knives and game processing kits. Now, in my bag this year, I had the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit. It comes in a very compact, handy carrying case, and one handle has the replaceable blade knife and the gutting blade. The other handle has the saw that comes with it. So, I use the saw to split the pelvis, and I use the gut hook to open up the cavity and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out, right? So uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple, very easy, and the the knife is sharp. And uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So um, take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at Fish and wildlife.org that's fish and wildlife.org ladies and gentlemen happy thursday and welcome back to another episode of the average conservationist podcast i'm your host marcus ewing Today on the podcast, I am joined by Brian Donovan, and Brian is the owner of 2% Certified First Light Printing and Graphics, and <clears throat> really, Brian and I get to have a, a pretty good and in-depth conversation about some some conservation issues and, and projects that are near and dear to him. Uh, one in particular um, is kind of in the works and in the process down there on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Um it's uh it's a, a project that runs a very high risk of really destroying uh a lot of the sport fishing and um water and the habitat and the wildlife uh in that area um and it's something that that Brian who spends a lot of time in that area is very passionate about um so if 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 you frequent that area um or if you know someone that does this is definitely uh, something you're going to want to listen to and check out and kind of look further into 
to see what it is that you can do to let your voice be heard to to try to prevent uh, some of this damage to this wetlands and this this wildlife um, as it pertains to uh, the Gulf Coast of Texas there. Uh, Brian and I also get to talk about, you know, what exactly it is that First Light does from a, a printing uh, standpoint, you know, a lot of what they offer their customers and their clients. Um, and Brian talks about some of his, um, you know, memorable hunts as a kid and what kind of really instilled the the conservation mindset in him. Um, you know, Brian is someone who does as much as he can um, to try to, you know, better the places and leave things better than he found him, better than he found them uh, for future generations uh, as it pertains to the outdoors. So just a really good episode full of a lot of information, especially with um, some of these projects that he's uh, working on or that he's very close to. So episode 46, Brian Donovan. Uh, Enjoy, guys. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, though, I want to take a minute to talk about our partners over at Stone Glacier. You guys have heard me talk about their packs and their bino harness, um, but if you haven't, um, definitely be sure to to check them out at StoneGlacier.com. And also, if you haven't, download the app. You can find it on Google Play or on iTunes and stay up to date with everything that Stone Glacier has going on. They've got some new films that they've dropped, uh, new product releases, um, you know, when products come back in stock. Everything's all right there on the app. So be sure and check them out again at StoneGlacier.com. All right, on the line with me today, I have the owner of 2% Certified First Light Printing and Graphics, Brian Donovan. Brian, how's it going, man? I'm pretty good, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you uh, making some time today. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I know. As we we were talking before here, we're kind of up against the gun, so we'll we'll kind of jump right into it here. Yeah, and I, I well, I kind of mentioned it before that given my uh, my company here, I, I kind of feel like I have a little bit of uh, expertise, so to speak, uh, in the printing and graphics world. So, kind of kick things off here. Tell us about First Light Printing and Graphics. So. I, I cut like family, family, it's a family affair. You know, my, my dad, uh, started off at Wallace business forms in the seventies and, uh, was, uh, he was a district manager when in 1987, uh, he started a company called graphic products, went on his own, started graphic products. And I, I came into the family business after uh, being in some tech startups for a while and uh and then my dad passed away in 2013 and when he did it it was kind of an opportunity for me to to get a a fresh start and do things exactly my own way so uh it took till 2016 for that to to come around so we're coming up on our fifth anniversary here and uh we do uh commercial printing uh large format uh you know forms and labels tags screen printing, embroidery, you know, kind of, kind of have our hands a little bit of anything. I, I like to tell people if it's got ink on it, we do it. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> Is there one specific style of, of printing that you guys kind of specialize in or that you're doing more of, whether it's, and this is for, for those listening, they're going to kind of scratch and be like, what the hell is he talking about? But whether it's, uh, you know, like discharge or, you know, plastic, anything like that, what, what do you guys kind of specialize in? So right now, um, we do a lot of large format printing. Um, so we're doing lots of signs, banners, floor graphics, things of that nature. And that's, uh, that's all UV printed. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a couple of Mamaki roll fed machines. We have some Mamaki flatbeds. Um, and so it's, uh, they're, they're very fast machines and, you know, in the printing business, uh, the faster you can get stuff done, the cheaper you can make it. So it's, uh, it's a good way to get really aggressive pricing for our customers. Um, and, and so we do all kinds of store signage and, and you know, things of that nature. And then, uh, you know, in, in the lead up to, to going live here, you know, you know, we're talking about, you know, screen printing and embroidery and, you know, you know, hats and shirts, all that kind of stuff, which, uh, was a, was a huge growth segment for us last year. Um, so we're working with a number of outdoor brands, um, as a, as a supplier for them, uh, for all of their retail facing, you know, shirts and hats. Yeah. So let me ask you, why was it, why do you think that it is, I guess, that there was such a big kind of uptick, especially in like just, you know, your, your basic hats, t-shirts, that type of apparel uh, last year when, you know, it seems like so many things had just kind of slowed right down to a crawl. Yeah. And it was, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that one brands, you know, are constantly wanting to stay in touch uh, with their customers. Um, And two, 
it was a lot easier to do that while everybody's at home, you know, working from home and, you know, everybody's on Instagram yeah. You know, oh, yeah. while they should be working. And, uh, and it was a, it was a great opportunity for those brands to, to be selling that kind of merchandise because, you know, if you're just sitting around the house all day, we don't need a new hoodie. Well, yeah, that, that's, yeah. For, for our listeners, averageconservationist.com if you need a new hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, and that's kind of what, what I've noticed, uh, over the past year and a half or so is that, you know, everyone wants to be kind of a part of something, right? They want to be able to support, you know, whether it's brands, individuals, uh, organizations, whatever it is. And, you know, a 25 to 30 up to, you know, 50 bucks for, uh, you know, potentially a hoodie or something. I mean, it's, it's a pretty small investment to, to be able to, um, support, you know, other, other people that are out there in the industry that have a lot of the same, um, views and, and opinion, well, maybe not opinions, but uh, views and, and outlook on, you know, the outdoor space. I think there's been a, a sort of a sea change. You've got brands like Yeti and Sitka that uh, that are have created an entire lifestyle as a branding exercise, and that's exactly what you're talking about. People are people buy in and they buy in hard, mm-hmm. and they they want to represent these brands that that represent who they are when they're off the clock, and so. Um, it, it, it just drives a ton of demand for branded goods um, that consumers can buy. Yeah, and especially for for like a company like Sika, like you just mentioned there, it it almost like opens things up to to a whole new kind of market in, in terms of their customers because you know you know they make a lot of cool shit that you can wear that's not necessarily you know subalpine or EV two or, or right. you know whatever it is, and people still want to be able to buy that stuff even even if they don't hunt or fish. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And they, they started out just making hunting gear. And when the lifestyle stuff started coming out, it was, it's, you could watch that stuff sell out in real time when they would introduce the lifestyle products. Yeah. So now Brian, where, uh, whereabouts are you guys located at? I'm in Prosper, Texas, which is a, a far Northern suburb of Dallas. So we're, uh, the, the North Texas area is if I drove from my house to downtown Dallas, I could I would pass more business than I could ever service in a lifetime. It's a it's a great place to be if you're in the hunting business. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, are you uh, born and raised there in Texas? I was born in Georgia, which I never forgave my parents for, um, <laughs> and uh, got to Texas at uh, at seven years old and haven't left and don't intend to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a uh, <clears throat> it's a great place to live. I've got I've got some family uh, in kind of the greater Austin area. Um, yep. that have made a few trips, uh, down to Texas over the years. And yeah, it's just, it's beautiful down there. And it's, it's, it's so diverse in terms of, you know, North Texas, the panhandle, you know, down to the coast. I mean, there's just so many different things that you can experience in, in just one state. It's, it's pretty unique in that regard. Yeah. It's, it, you know, we live here, but we own a second home in uh, Rockport and spend a good deal of time down there. You know, last year worked out really well for being able to spend a lot of time in Rockport fishing and working at the same time. Yeah. So now you kind of touched on it, but if you don't mind mentioning again, what all services do you offer your clients? So we do digital printing. We do offset printing. Uh, it, it, we do everything from catalogs. We do a lot of catalogs. Uh, marketing material, uh, retail graphics. Um, we do a lot of business forms, uh, tags, and labels for things like warehouse and distribution environments. Um, we do a lot of uh, branded labels, uh, you know, just stickers with people's logos on them. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of everything. Um, it's a, it, it, I'm a, I'm a printing distributor, what used to be called a broker. I work with shops that only work with people like me. They don't work with the general public. Um, so these direct to trade shops, I work with a, a, a host of them. Um, and some of these guys are people I've had relationships with and, and my dad had relationships with that, that go back, you know, 40 years. And, uh, we work with great people and it gives us a huge array of capabilities. So it's pretty hard to stump me with a printing project. Yeah. Um, I've got somebody that can do it. I guarantee it. Yeah. Now, did you, <laughs> whatever fi- it is, <laughs> Now I know things in Texas are are always a little bit different, and I know that I well correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Texas had quite the the restrictions and, and shutdowns and things like that that a lot of other states had. And but one thing I noticed 
obviously when when the whole pandemic started is you know every business it seemed like had a new sign to you know stay six feet apart or wear a mask or you know whatever it was now did you see a lot of of that type of business come in with people wanting you know signage and things like that made yeah absolutely it was when it started it was there was a two-week period there where the phone didn't ring the email didn't go off i mean everybody's trying to get their feet under them and, and adapt to how the hell are we going to keep doing business and when texas began to to you know, they, they classified what essential businesses were. And then, um, you know, you started having, allowing things to open at reduced capacities. Um, and at that point, once everybody kind of had their hands wrapped around a the game, then yeah, there was a huge spike, especially in uh, social distancing floor graphics. Yeah. Um, lots and lots of those. Um, and a lot of, uh, just a lot of small signage, uh, you know, same thing, social distancing type stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> I want to shift gears a little bit here, Brian, and you said you were born in Georgia. You've been in Texas since you were seven. So how was it that you were first introduced to the outdoors? I, even before we moved to Texas, it, we, we lived in Snowville, Georgia, which at the time was in the middle of nowhere outside of Atlanta. And you could walk to the end of the street and there was a, I, I it's, I'm looking at it through the eyes of a five and six year old. To me, it was literally just the edge of the earth as far as open <laughs> land. My dad and I would go down there and my, my dad, we didn't even have a dog. My dad would pick up a 20 gauge and we walk down the end of the street and he'd go walk quail. And I'd tag along with a little Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, as long as long as I've been alive, I've, I've been in the outdoors. I've been a lot of fishing with my dad. And then things really got serious when I was 10 o'clock or sorry, 10 years old, uh, my, uh, my father had, uh, had hired, uh, a guy out of Texas A&M named Jeff Birmingham, who was a gigantic, is a gigantic duck hunter. And he took me on my first duck hunt at 10, uh, down on Matagorda Island. And, uh, at the time his father was a captain in the Texas game wardens. And so we stayed at the, at the warden station out on Matagorda Island. And we hunted, there was a, there's a lighthouse on, uh, on Matagorda. It's one of the only cast iron lighthouses in North America. Um, and it's, uh, there was a pond right underneath it called Lighthouse Pond, very cleverly. Um, and we were the only ones that were allowed to hunt it um, because of Jeff's dad. And that was back in the days when a Drake Pentel was a 20 point duck. And I've got, I've got pictures of me of 10 and 11 years old with a five man limit of five Pentels per man. Oh, wow. Um, so many ducks, I can barely hold them up. <laughs> and after my first duck hunt, I, man, I swallowed the hook to my guts. I've been duck hunting ever since. All right. <clears throat> now, obviously, you know, those familiar, Texas is known for having just this array of kind of exotic animals down there as well. So aside from, you know, waterfowl hunting, duck hunting, what are some of the other animals that you really love to hunt? I, you know what? I've, I've been to Wyoming a few times. I've uh, been elk hunting, been pronghorn hunting. I still need a mule deer to finish my slam, my western slam. Um, so I, I do enjoy hunting uh, western stuff. I've hunted whitetail all over Texas. Um, I've really, my next adventure, I think, is going to be a Neil guy hunt. I'm, I'm pretty pretty anxious to go shoot a Neil guy. Um, there's very few things in the world that are better on a plate than Neil guy. Okay. And it, it's, you know, the places down, down along the, the coastal bend that, and in South Texas that have a bunch of Neil guy, uh, you know, it's a, it's a high rack ride around, tip one over, drink some beer kind of hot. It's, it's, there's not a lot of hunting in that hunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just grocery shopping with a rifle. Yeah. Uh, which seems super fun to me. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's a lot better than uh, weaving through the aisles at a regular grocery store. Yeah, and plus, I mean, if you live in Texas, you you're not whole, you're not wholly Texan until you've done something hunting wise on the King Ranch. So I, I really want to head down there. I think I'm going to do that this year. Okay. So you, you kind of touched on it there, but the, the, the duck hunting experience that you had when you were young, would you say that's probably your most memorable hunt or is there something else that sticks out? Oh my gosh. My, my, my first elk, that's a big one, but yeah, those, it, you're, you're talking about a literal paradise on earth for a 10, 11, 12 year old kid. I, you know, I had, I had at the time, half of Matagorda Island was privately owned. Um, and the, the public half of that island was 
a private island almost. There was a there was a rickety ass old pier, which I've got a picture of on my Instagram at Three Girl. Um, that it you had to you had to I had to be picked up and set on this thing because it didn't go all the way to the ground, and it was held together with bailing wire and linoleum, and it was just <laughs> it was a damn ocean nightmare. And so we would duck out in the morning, and we'd go out on this rickety ass old pier and just slam redfish in the second gut. And then at night, you know, the wardens were like, hey, boy, have you ever seen night vision before? Well, of course I haven't seen night vision. Yeah, so I'm you 10. have giant <laughs> night vision monocular, Gen 1 monocular, that you could go out there and just sit and, and watch some of the biggest white-tailed deer you've ever seen in your life walking around that island at night. Wow. Um, and that's actually, that's where I killed my first deer. I'd been on a couple of... Uh, uh, this is another super memorable hunt. I've been on a couple of deer hunts and it actually fired once. And my dad said, you were so far over a son. I'm not sure that bullet came down in the same County. <laughs> <laughs> and so he called Jim Birmingham, the uh, Jeff's dad, the game warden and, and said, you know, Brian is desperate to kill the deer. You know, is there anything, anything down there where we might be able to, you know, get him the dough? He said, let me make a phone call. I'll call you back. So he called the owner of the other half of Matagorda Island and said, I got this 10-year-old or 11-year-old boy who is desperate to shoot a deer. You mind if we come down there and shoot a spike? And he said, you tell that boy to shoot every spike he sees. Get over here. <laughs> and so I managed to get access to this private half of Matagorda Island and roll down there. And we just drove down the road in a pickup truck that we saw in the back of a game warden pickup truck, old Dodge pickup, and until we saw a spike. Put a sleeping bag on the cab, tipped him over, went back to our side of the island and cleaned him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. I mean, especially at, at that age and, and being able to experience, you know, like this, you know, pristine area for hunting that, you know, essentially no one else has access to. I mean, yeah, for sure. That would definitely be uh, probably one of my more memorable ones as well. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it, I was just absolutely spoiled. And the older I got, the more of that realization, you know, set in so that by the time I was in college, it's like, good God, man, that's, yeah. that was just like being Huck Finn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. The things that a lot of us have uh, access to as, as kids and as youth. I mean, I grew up in a, in a rural area, rural area in like Northern lower Michigan where everything was, you know, 10 or 15 minutes out my door. And I never really thought about it. I mean, in fact, as I got older into my teens and and later in high school, I thought, I can't wait to get out of here, right? Like, I, I want to experience, you know, more people, you know, uh, bigger culture, you know, just I, I need to get out of here, this small town living. And then fast forward into my, you know, mid to late 20s. And, you know, I've, I've lived in big cities like Chicago, and I live in kind of metro Detroit now. And there's so often times where I'm like, get me the hell out of here, right? Like, get me back to those, the the rural area, the the area that I grew up in, because there's just there's so much more you can do and so much more that you love that you you wish you would have taken more advantage of it when you were younger. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's and and the older you get, and the more you see places like that get used up, and, mm-hmm. and you have fewer and fewer opportunities, and and you know it's it's I. I may be, you know, the the last generation that, you know, we may be the last generation that had opportunities like that where you could literally just, I, I, when, when we moved to Plano in 1981, Plano was a couple of stoplights. And I could walk out the back door of my house and walk all the way to what is now Frisco, which was nothing but just open, fallow farmland. It was all, it had all been bought up by developers, these absentee developers. And so, you just grab a Daisy 880 and walk out the back door and see it sundown, Mom. Um, yeah. And so I spent all day, every day during the summer, just wandering around fields with a with a pellet rifle. Well, hell, now they put you on an FBI watch list. Yeah. <laughs> There's youths out there walking around with firearms. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how much times change. I mean, you know, I have <clears throat> I have two young kids, and I think. Uh, you know, the way I am now or the way I guess just society and things that have shifted so much over the last, you know, 30 years that things I did as a kid, I don't know that I'd feel comfortable letting my kids do. Right. I mean, again, right. going back to where I grew up, I mean, 
you know, I, I was kind of at a corner of a dirt road and a paved road and, you know, a three minute walk down the dirt road and I was into the woods. So I tell my mom, yeah, I'm, I'm going to play in the woods, right? Like I'm sure so many other kids did when they were little. And now I, I, I just can't see myself telling, you know, they're not that old yet, but you know, when they get older, yeah, just go play in the woods for a little bit. See you at sundown, right? Like it's, it's weird how, right. how much things have shifted and changed over the last, you know, however long. Yeah, it's it's everybody. Everyone wants to hover over their kids now and be super protective. And man, I was. Uh, I don't want to say I was a latchkey kid. It's not like my parents didn't care, but they just knew that I was going to be safe with a gun. And I was with a couple of my chucklehead friends, and yeah. pretty much nothing back had happened. So we'll see you at dinner time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I my parents were the same way. No, I absolutely agree. So. Kind of speaking of hunting and things like that, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk more about the conservation side of first light printing. So obviously the reason that we're, we're able to make the introduction and get you on the podcast here is that first light is 2% certified. So how was it, Brian, that you first learned about 2% for your uh, conservation? You know, it was, uh, uh, it was through Sitka, um, had just mentioned it and I thought, well, what in the world is this? And looked it up and saw that, you know, they had, they could certify both individuals and businesses and we run all of our conservation donations to the company anyway. So I called Jared up and, uh, and you know, it's, it's, you can, uh, during the certification process, you can either hand over your financials or if you're a closely held company, you can basically just have your CPA or your auditor, uh, submit a letter that, that indicates that yes, they are definitely giving at least 1% of, of gross to conservation causes. And, uh, and, and that was that, I mean, it's, it's, it was a natural fit for us because it was a way to be certified for something that we had already been doing since the founding of the company. I mean, it, it, one of the reasons that I went out on my own as an independent company was to dramatically reduce the expenses of running my business so that all of that money could be used for conservation. Okay. And so we run extremely lean, um, which allows us to, to be, you know, pretty generous with conservation causes that we believe in. Yeah. So what are some of those causes that you're giving back to? So, uh, we're a major donor with Ducks Unlimited. We're Diamond Life sponsors. Um, we support Delta Waterfowl. Uh, we're a member of the Bull Moose Circle at TRCP, um, and uh, do do monthly giving with them. Uh, do monthly giving with Delta. Um, we support CCA uh, because you know, I, I, I have an affinity for the Texas coast, where I intend to retire. I spend as much time down there as possible, and there are a lot of critical conservation needs down there that both Ducks Unlimited and CCA address. Okay, now <clears throat> I know when we had kind of been corresponding. Um, prior to hopping on here, there was a, a couple of big projects that, that you wanted to make sure wanted to make, yeah, you wanted to make sure that we, that we definitely talked about. So why don't you tell me about, uh, some of those projects that are kind of near and dear and that you're passionate about? Yeah. The biggest one is, uh, is a situation that's going on in Port Aransas, Texas, which is across the bay from Rockport. It's out on the barrier island of Mustang Island. Uh, you know, the entire Texas coast is protected by barrier islands. It gives us a very unique ecosystem. Um, where we have inner bays that are fed by giant estuary systems that are extremely fertile for, for all of our game fish like redfish and, and speckled trout, for flounder, black drum, uh, you know, stone crab, blue crab. You know, it, we've got tarpon down in the coastal bend, and the tarpon population is slowly increasing. Port Aransas used to be known as the tarpon capital of the Gulf. Um, and they were fished completely out. And then that population is slowly starting to rebuild. Um, and so it's a, the, the middle coastal bend, especially the area around Corpus Christi, Rockport, Port Aransas, um, has got a, a very, it's a very unique ecosystem and it's being threatened right now by the port of Corpus Christi who has gotten it in their heads that uh, a small island directly across the intracoastal waterway from uh, Port Aransas called Harbor Island would be a great place to build a very large crude container ship terminal. They oh, want to wow. put, yeah, they want to put two berths for VLCCs on Harbor Island 
And if you don't know what a VLCC is, that ever given ship that just got stuck in the Suez Canal is roughly the same size as a VLCC. Ships okay. are over a thousand feet long, um, and they carry uh, they carry crude oil, millions of barrels of it, and uh, and they want to put these uh, these terminals right at the, the the mouth of the the ditch there that goes out to the Gulf. And it's a huge, terrible idea. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible idea. You could not ask for a worse place to put that because it threatens basically the entire Redfish Bay, Corpus Christi Bay, Copano Bay complex, uh, Aransas Bay, um, not only you know, with the potential for pollution from spillage and from uh, you know, the potential for you know, having a, like an actual big oil leak. Right. Um, but uh, just the dredging process for building this thing, when they dredge, they're going to run up all this sediment. And so one of the things that makes the, the, the ecosystem down there very special is it's a gigantic seagrass beds. It's one of the largest contiguous seagrass beds in the Gulf. And it's the largest contiguous seagrass bed west of the Mississippi. Okay. And so when you stir up all of this this dredge material, all that, that sediment, tidal action will carry that into the bays and it will kill the seagrass and, because it shades it out. Yeah, in turn, killing the population that, that feed off yeah. of it or pushing Absolutely. it out. Absolutely. That, that, that seagrass supports the entire ecosystem. We have sea turtles galore in that area, plus all the various fish species and crustaceans that we have. And you're talking about wrecking those seagrass beds. Seagrass beds are a little bit, uh, it's a lot like the snow goose situation, right? Upper Hudson Bay, mm -hmm. snow geese get in there, they grub while they're feeding. That material, or those plants that grow up there, grow back extremely slow. And so the damage is unrecoverable. It's the same kind of thing with the seagrass beds because seagrass grows extremely slow. And it needs a very particular set of uh, conditions in order to be healthy and to thrive. And by introducing all of that sediment during the dredge process, you shade that grass out, and it does, it doesn't just bounce back like your lawn. Right. Once it's gone, it's gone. You can look at aerial photos of this area and see prop scars where people have run boats through water that's too shallow, and a prop scar can take five to seven years to, to heal up. Wow. Just a prop scar. Yeah. And so if you're shading out entire grass beds, they're never coming back. <clears throat> and so we've, we've been... We've been active. There's there's not a lot of places to throw money at that, and so it, this is more of our one percent of our time as far as lobbying against this thing, um, trying to trying to get the project killed. And the Cor Port of Corpus Christi is just dead set on ramming this thing down everybody's throat. Nobody wants it except the Port of Corpus Christi. Well, yeah, that was kind of going to be one of my next questions. Was you know what are you know the locals and I mean because I'd imagine. You know, not only from a, a tourism standpoint, but from, a, you know, like a sport fishing standpoint, you know, all the guides that are running out of down there that are fishing all these game fish. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the livelihood of, you know, I, I can't even, you know, I'm going to guess, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, at least that's in jeopardy because, you know, the, the port wants to, wants to bring this in. Yeah. The, the people of Port Aransas do not want this thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the outdoor economy in Port Aransas generates $400 million annually, and 47% of that is nature tourism related. And that's everything from fly fishing to bird watching. That, that area is one of the top bird watching destinations in North America. Okay. And just right there in the immediate area of Port Aransas, you have the Lighthouse Lakes Paddling Trail. You have Redfish Bay State Scientific Area that has 32,000 acres of contiguous seagrass bed. It's part of the Great Texas Coastal Birding Trail, which has 215 species of birds. And you have the Leona Bell Turnbull Birding Center. So it's a it's a very wealthy, you know, ecological area. And now you're talking about not only the, the physical pollution from having crude oil in and out of there, plus the potential for some kind of a, you know, a mishap with a VLCC, but you have all kinds of air quality problems as well that are related to loading and unloading these ships, plus the storage of the crude oil that is waiting on a ship to, to pick it up. Yeah. Um, and 
and TECQ, which is the Texas TCEQ, the Texas Council on Environmental Quality, just a couple of weeks ago, approved uh, the permit, the air quality variance permit for this project. Huh. Yeah, yeah, pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like all the things you just mentioned there seem to me <clears throat> they're they're issues that would that are you know, potentially after the fact, right? With storing, with ships coming in and things like that. I mean, that's not even taking into consideration what you had already touched on with, you know, the dredging and the building and all the machinery and equipment that's going to have to be in there just to get this thing constructed. I mean, I'm not an environmental scientist or wildlife biologist or anything like that, but it seems like the, the potential loss for wildlife is just, is catastrophic for, for something like this. And, it doesn't seem like it's even remotely worth it or it should even be in consideration. Yeah, and, and aside from the that sort of light attenuation problem that you have uh, in sediment suspension, um, just just the, the physical aspect of how that shades seagrass, this, this area has been home to petroleum transport for decades. Um, it's the Texas coast. And we're Texas. There's nobody down here that hates oil. It's just everything has a proper place, and Harbor Island is not it for a VLCC terminal. One of the other problems that you have is you have sort of heavy metal, uh, you know, organochlorines and petroleum hydrocarbon contaminants, all these various things that once they settle into the sediment bed on the bottom of the channel, they're sort of locked in place. Yeah. And it's not really no harm, no foul, but as long as nobody stirs that crap up, it's reasonably benign. Okay. As soon as you start dredging, back in 1988 and 89, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did a study at Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, which is just up the bay from Port Aransas, where they had done some dredging, and they, they went and basically sampled this dredge spoil, and they found that all of these bad chemicals that had been uh, sort of locked in place on the bottom of the bay were 200 to 500% higher in the spoil. Oh, wow. So they drug this stuff off, off the bottom and, you know, it's like turning dirt over and now all the bad stuff's on top. So there it's, it's a, it's a, it's a bad deal for everybody in the coastal bend, but the Port of Corpus Christi does not care about local input. They're going to do whatever they want to do, and they're going to be aided and abetted by the regulatory structures in Texas, which are very pro-industry. Um, which, again, that's part of the Texas miracle, man. That's why our economy is what it is. Yeah. But there's a time and a place, and this is neither. Yeah. So I, you you mentioned before that there's there's not really a lot of places where you can give money to to try to help fight it. So you've been that's where you've been you know kind of getting your hands dirty. You know, use doing it more in that regard. But what are some ways? Because I'm sure we're going to have listeners who whether they're you know they regular um, the Texas coast there uh, or they just they just know that based on our conversation, it sounds like a bad deal. Like you just said. Is there any way that you know of that people can kind of help get involved, even if they're not from Texas there? So uh, there's a there's an outfit called the Texas Coastal Coalition um, that you can find on Facebook, and I believe they're on Instagram as well, uh, that that puts out information. They're, they're keeping their fingers on the, the regulatory wheel turning um, for the permits for this thing. And, and the, uh, the, the crazy thing is, it's the Port of Corpus Christi, and they have leased Harbor Island to an outfit called Lone Star Ports. And for some reason, they terminated Lone Star Ports' lease on March 16th, out of the blue. Everybody was ecstatic for about 24 hours until the port came out and said, no, 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 no. We're still going to build this terminal. We're just not going to build it with those guys. It's like, how uh, awesome. Because it really was like, oh, my God, they, like – the project's dead. Yeah, like we did and it. Yeah, that, that joy lasted less than a day before a court, you know, the court came out and said, "No, no, 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 no. we're still doing this." Um, and so, uh, Texas Coastal Coalition puts out, uh, you know, good information um, about what is going on. And then, other than that, uh, there's a the the Port A newspaper is called the South Jetty, and uh, it's. Uh, it's the, about the only other news outlet that is giving regular coverage to this. It's, it's popped up once or twice in like San Antonio and Corpus Christi, um, but uh, it's it's 
flying largely under the radar unless you live in a, you know, basically a Rancis County. <laughs> so do you have uh, any idea kind of what the time frame might look like for when they would potentially actually start construction on this? This so the 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 regulatory process for this is going to play out over the course of years. Yeah. As with anything that is a you know a huge destructive project like the Pebble Mine, for instance, this thing will be tied up in litigation instantaneously. Yeah. Once it's actually approved and everything is green lights, I cannot imagine that there's not a raft of lawsuits that come down. So the good news is you're talking about a time scale of, of many years, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I've been watching this thing for two years now, and other than that air quality permit that just got issued, not a whole lot has happened. Okay. Uh, but, you know, like I said, uh, Port of Corpus Christi has a ton of money. They have uh, regulators that are on their side. Um, and... This is just one of those, it, 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 the pebble mine, this is our pebble mine in Texas, basically. Okay. And you know how that thing was just a slow motion avalanche, how, how that, how industry uses the regulatory system to just grind any, you know, opposition into the dust because everything moves so slow and is so legalistic and you have to really be paying attention to catch any, you know, applicable your public comment periods or anything like that. So it's, this is going to play out over a, over a, a period of years. And I'm still optimistic that, that the, the, that this project can be killed. And there's a win here still for the Texas oil industry, which is to just take this terminal and put it offshore. Yeah. And that's the hashtag that the Texas coastal coalition uses is hashtag take it offshore because they can build a terminal like 12, 13, 14 miles offshore where all of that oil is still loaded and offloaded and we're still exporting oil. Yeah. And and so the, the industry can still win without having major negative environmental consequences for, for a, a really precious piece of Texas. Yeah. Yeah, well, you said it was the Texas Coastal Coalition, is that right? Yep, Texas Coastal Coalition. All right, well, I'll have to uh, <clears throat> make sure and start following them along because this is definitely something that, uh, that that I think probably deserves more attention, like you said, than it's getting, especially, you know, it doesn't even sound like maybe in all of Texas it's getting the the uh, recognition it deserves, and, and definitely if we can help kind of spread the word on that, all the better. Yeah, no, it's it, right now it's very much a local problem, but it's uh, it, it has... Uh, if anybody follows JT Van Zant on, on Instagram, uh, you know, famous fly fishing guy that, that fishes the same water that I fish, and he's, uh, you'll see on the, the TCC uh, social media channels, he's done a video uh, talking about the project and talking about how, you know, how special the area that we that we enjoy is and why it's just not the right place to put a thousand feet worth of worth of crude oil floating. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's absolutely true. Now you said there was a, another project, uh, that you want to talk about too. So the, was that a, uh, a fence pole, uh, up in, is it Montana or Wyoming? Yeah, it's in Montana. And so that was, uh, that was something that Jared had reached out on. Uh, the Montana, uh, fish, wildlife and parks is, uh, is working with, uh, some other, uh, like the, the, uh, national wildlife foundation, uh, some other uh, NGOs to remove fencing um, in to re- help restore. It's it's on the horse prairie um, to remove fences that are interrupting uh, pronghorn migration corridors. Okay, and that uh, th- there are some really cool uh, telemetry studies that were done where they collared pronghorns. And you, you can look at these tracks, and a pronghorn track just looks like it was made with a spirograph, you know, until it <laughs> hits a fence, and then it will take a 90-degree. Okay. Because, you know, pronghorns, for any listeners that aren't aware, pronghorns cannot jump. They do not go over fences. So a fence is a, a full stop for a pronghorn, and they migrate over hundreds of miles. And so if they hit a fence, that's it. Migration's over unless they can find a way under or around the fence. So they're removing a bunch of unused fence to help restore these, these migration. Okay. 
and it's it's you know there's some there's some cool stuff going on uh, with the American Prairie Project up there uh, to try to get gigantic contiguous swaths of land to restore a lot of these historic migration corridors for you know for the the megafauna of the West you know your your elk and uh, you know even bears <laughs> yeah. I, I always find it interesting and I really like to see it, especially when, you know, you're, you're there in Texas, this is a project up in Montana, you know, people that are getting involved in, in conservation projects out of state and that are, are helping and bettering things that, you know, if, whether you hunt pronghorn or you have, or you haven't, I, I think that's kind of irrelevant. You know, it's, it's, you see this need, um, for, for the fence pole and the reasoning behind it. So you guys are getting involved. And especially when you start crossing state lines, in my opinion, I think that really kind of shows your, your true dedication and passion towards, um, you know, conservation, the outdoors, this, these wild places and habitat that, that are out there that we all love to enjoy. Cause you know, I don't know, you know, based on the work that, that you'll be doing up there, if, if you're going to be able to hunt pronghorn in that area or that, you know, potential herd, um, but you know someone else is going to, right? And you know that that person probably shares a lot of the same views along conservation as you do. So you guys are working together uh, in that regard. And I think that's 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 just something that there needs to be more of. Yeah, and the National Wildlife Federation is, is uh, they've actually just hired uh, um, a guy named Simon Buzzard, who's going to be the, um, the project manager for this. And... Um, not only are they going to be a removing fence, but there is a way that you can modify a fence where a pronghorn can get through. Okay. And basically it's by replacing smooth, you're putting smooth bottom wire on the fence, right? Okay. And that way the pronghorn can go under the fence. If it's barbed wire, they won't, they won't go under, but if it's smooth wire, they will. Huh. And so you're, it's, this is one of those projects where, where, everybody's on the same team and everybody's going to win here. The, the landowners that have livestock in the area will still be able to have usable fence. Um, and it's going to be made friendly so that you have, even if it's a, you know, if, if these pronghorn are crossing a piece of private that nobody will ever hunt or only the owner will ever hunt, that is a net plus of the entire ecosystem to have these pronghorn be able to move, you know, these two, 300 miles to, you know, to cross the continental divide, um, during their migration. And so it's, it's helping to restore these prairie ecosystems is, is to me critical to the long-term ecological functioning of the West. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So is this one of those projects that you're going to be able to go out and, and actually participate in, or is it more, um, from like a, a donating standpoint or helping, you know, raise funds for it? Right. Right now I'm just kind of throwing money at it. Um, I'm not sure if volunteers will be allowed to work on the project or not. I, I want to say that they were looking for some volunteer labor on this thing. Okay. That's a, but that's a good question to ask either Simon or Jared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially there in Montana. Jared seems to have his, his kind of finger on the pulse of, of everything. That, well, not I only guarantee Montana. you if, if they need warm bodies on the ground to help with this project, Jared is going to go into fifth gear and they'll have a hundred people out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jared's, he's very good at that, at, at rallying. Jared gets shit done. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he does. <laughs> that's absolutely true. So, I know we're kind of up against it, so just a few more questions here, Brian. Yeah. So would you say that the, the conservation mindset and, and just kind of the ethos behind that was kind of instilled at that very young age with your dad? Yeah, and it, it, not only my dad, but but Jeff Birmingham, who took me on my first duck hunt, um, he, he was a big supporter of Ducks Unlimited, and uh, and so was my dad. But my, my dad was more of a financial supporter, at, but Jeff – was doing a lot of uh, volunteering with his local committee, um, you know, helping with uh, some habitat projects down along the Texas coast, you know, back in the early eighties. Um, and so he's the one that really, uh, really provided a role model for all of the different things that you could do, the different ways that you could do other than just writing checks Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that, 
to help perpetuate, you know, this, this, these, these places and these animals that we love. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's, I learned very early on that you, you have always got to put back more than you take. And that is, that's your primary job as a hunter is to make sure that you're, you're leaving places better than you found them, that you're building a legacy for conservation. And so that, you know, generations from now, people will still have the same opportunities that we had. I, I, I mean, I had a few more, oh, I had one more question for you, but man, I don't know. You just, you just kind of tied like such a very nice, neat bow and really just, I mean, you sum that just summed up con, you know, conservation in a nutshell right there, leaving it, but I don't even, I don't even want to repeat it because you just, you said it very eloquently. You nailed it, man. You nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> Well, hey, I know you got another thing to run to here, Brian, but I really appreciate you taking some time to, to hop on the podcast. I would really like to hear more about the business and, and especially, you know, some of the projects that you're real passionate on and, and working real closely with down there in Texas. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here, man. I, I think very highly of 2% as an organization, enough so that I'm one of the ambassadors down here in Texas. So if you're in Texas and you're thinking about getting your business certified, I'm not hard to find. I'd be happy to help you with that. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like there's more and more businesses from uh, from Texas that are becoming 2% certified, so I love to see that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just talked to the guys from Duck Camp a couple of weeks ago, and yeah. uh, and they're in the middle of getting their certification right now. So that's, that's great to see another waterfowl-oriented company uh, uh, joining the family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Brian, we'll talk to you soon, and uh, thanks again. All right, appreciate it, bud. All right, take care. Thanks. All right. Well, a big thanks to Brian for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners over at Go Hunt and Stone Glacier. Uh, be sure and check them out and support the companies that support the podcast and help make this possible. Uh, and also, if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the Average Conservationist podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I'd also like to thank the partners over at 2%. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org and there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation driven content so you will uh, definitely enjoy that in your feeds. Uh, So again if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Brian. Uh, Remember stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.